This is Nehemiah uh, chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. Okay. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, Why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, What is it you want? Then I prayed to God. Then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king. If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah, where my ancestors are buried, so that I can rebuild it. Then the king said, Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, How long will your journey take? And when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, If it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates so that they would provide me safe conduct until I, re- until I arrive in Judah? And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so that he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy? And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my requests. So I went to the governor of Trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent an army, sent army officers and cavalry with me. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. Thanks, Drew. Reading while balancing and turning pages. It's a huge ask, y'all. Uh, all right, we're going to talk uh, this morning, I said this when we started, about risk-taking. Because uh, if you've been here for the last few weeks, you know this, but if not, I'll try to catch you up. Um, That is what we see our brother Nehemiah doing in this passage. Um, After a hundred days of kind of since his first encounter with the exiles kind of returning and him being inquisitive and curious about that, a hundred days of praying, a hundred days of mourning, a hundred days of of fasting over the state of Israel, the state of Jerusalem, this window opens for him to talk. Uh, to, we'll call him Art, Artaxerxes. I'm going to go short. Uh, he gets an opportunity to talk to Artaxerxes, and he's, he's taking a huge risk in talking to the king about this because he's actually about to ask him to reverse his decision, a decision that he's already made that I'm not going to allow Jerusalem to be rebuilt. The Israelites are a rebellious people. If I let them rebuild, they may rebel and break free again from our kingdom. So Artaxerxes has already rendered a decision on this, right? And Nehemiah is going and asking, will you change that? And it's a huge risk because he's leveraging his position, right? He's cupbearer to the king, which is like being the secretary of state, right? So he's got an ear, an audience with the king. He's a trusted advisor of the king, but he's leveraging that position, that high position for the good of Israel and Jerusalem, but it could go really bad for him, right? Because based on that current position that he has, and based on the decision that Artaxerxes has already given, it could be seen as dissension, it could be seen as treason, even suggesting what he's about to suggest. 
right? Because he's going and about to ask to go against the already expressed will of the king. Would you change your course for me, for Israel, for the, for the place of my ancestors, Jerusalem? And if Nehemiah, if he's going to do that, for him to follow God and what God has set in his heart to do is what chapter 2, verse 18 says. What God put in his heart to do, he's going to have to take that risk that we just read. Okay? So the three things we'll, we'll talk about as we kind of come to the table that I hope will be really meaningful. I hope this is incredibly practical for you and me, even as we come to the table. Three things, following God, if you're going to follow God, if you're going to build your life with his vision, right? Which is our, the call in our lives. I'm going to build or rebuild like we're in a rebuilding season. My life with his vision. Following God will always involve risk. Always. Secondly, there's a risk involved in not taking a risk. That's the second thing we'll talk about. Third thing is, is our ultimate confidence to risk. Okay? So following God will always involve risk. Secondly, there's a risk involved in not risking. And then thirdly, our ultimate confidence to risk. Okay? First thing, following God, living in his vision for our lives will always involve risk. Now, I don't, I don't think we necessarily live, we might more today than ever before for this group of people, we live every day taking risks, some form of risk. I said that when I called us to worship, you took a risk coming to church here today because what if God moves in your heart in a way that you actually leave here and realize, I have to deal with something that before I came here this morning, I didn't have to deal with, but God pushed into my heart through worship or through the table. You took a risk coming here, right? But every day we're all taking some form of risk, living our lives. It made me think of, you remember the film Along Came Polly? You guys remember that film? Go watch it. You'll laugh a lot, right? Do you remember what Ben Stiller's character, what his job was? He was, yeah, he was a risk assessment specialist, right? And he, I think he worked for some kind of an insurance company where basically he calculated risk all the time. And he had this software on his computer called Risk Master, right? And there's this scene where he's, he basically is entering in, he's trying to decide, am I going to date Polly? And he's entering in all these facts about her. Like, you know, she drives, doesn't wear a seatbelt when she rides in her car and she eats Indian food and all this sort of stuff. And it was to calculate Compared to his old girlfriend, what is the risk in dating Polly versus dating the girl I was just dating, right? Risk masters. We're risk masters in many ways. But driving a car, you take a risk, right? Choosing to love someone and being vulnerable to love someone, that's taking a risk because you're risking the possibility of getting hurt. If you're going to love somebody, you're going to get hurt, right? You take risks when you go to certain public places, right? I remember being in, in Belfast in Northern Ireland and being told there are streets that Protestants cannot drive on. You, Dave, oh, Dave, they would say to me, oh, Dave, don't drive down the Shank Hill Road, right? If you drove down the Shank Hill Road, you were putting yourself in danger, right? You can't go to certain places. You take a risk doing that. Purchasing a home is taking a risk. Investing money in something, it's making, taking a risk. Making decisions about your kids' schools. Oh my gosh. 
the amount of risk master analysis that's going on and the conversations I hear about that one topic, right? Accepting a job, leaving a job, risk is a part of our lives. And for the most part, if I'm really honest with myself, I sense this in myself and I see it in others, the same thing I see in Ben Stiller, right? I'm actually trying so much in my life to avoid any real risk, right? At least a certain degree of it. I only will do something or certain things if I'm like 99% sure that if I go and do that, it's actually going to deliver in the way that I thought it was going to deliver. I'm going to get the outcome that I was hoping for, right? Well, what Nehemiah is doing here isn't that. He's not calculating like that. He's not doing what Ben Stiller did in The Risk Master, right? He's not assessing the probabilities of it going well. He's already done a lot of that through his prayer, right? Through his time of fasting, through his time of actually coming before the Lord and even confessing his sin. He had thought through everything that he was about to do. That is really clear just by what he asked for, right? But he knew when he was going in to talk to Artaxerxes, whenever that window would open and he would have the conversation, if God wasn't working in the heart of the king about the idea that he was about to hatch, this was going to go bad. It wasn't a risk in that sense. It was like, if God doesn't move in the heart of the king, what I'm about to do is basically I'm signing up for a death sentence. It could go one way or the other, but it wouldn't be neutral. He wouldn't hear the idea and be like, hmm, that's interesting. You know, let me sit on that for a little while and consider what you're saying to me. And I don't know, we may or may not do something like that, right? That's not what was going to happen. He knew that if God wasn't working, it was going to go bad. He could have had him killed on the spot for the idea. If I'm honest, I try to avoid moments like this at all costs. No way, dude. This isn't a risk. This is crazy, right? It's being totally vulnerable and trusting God and not myself in real time. That's what Nehemiah is doing here. He's taking that kind of a risk. When it comes to risk, I don't know about you, but I think a lot of people, I've thought this before, and we have pictures painted of this for us culturally. Even in church, we have pictures painted for us of this. That if you actually follow God and or are close to God, And if you're trying to follow him and his vision for your life, not your vision for your life, because we all have visions for our lives that are antithetical to his vision for our life, right? We tend to trust that we have the same visions as God does for our lives, but oftentimes he has very different visions. But if I'm going to follow God and I'm going to get close to him, then oftentimes I think there's, at least in the the church culture, there's this belief that if I'm really following him, then I'm going to have this kind of unwavering confidence, this unflappable faith, right? That I'm like, I'm kind of like a spiritual Thor with my, my faith hammer flying around, right? With bravado and fearlessness. That's what it means to actually take risks and have faith in God. But that's not what we see right here in Nehemiah. And I'll argue in a second in Jesus. 
That's not what we see in Nehemiah, and it's not, in my own personal experience, what I know and I've experienced. Because he, you know, he's going to have a hard conversation here, and aren't hard conversations risky? Don't we feel that? When I know I'm going into a very difficult conversation that could go one way or the other, or maybe because of the nature of the conversation, I know that if God's not working, it's going to go bad, Right? I am literally pushing all my chips onto the table of God's going to got to do something here. I'm afraid. I feel fear. I sweat, right? I have that anxiety stomach, right? And that's what Nehemiah has too, right? That's what he expresses here. Fear. I'll just tell you this, a little fear or maybe even a lot of fear and uncertainty actually is the litmus test that you're likely living in faith and attempting something that requires real dependence on God. Fear is not the problem. Faith isn't the absence of doubt or fear. It's moving forward with doubt, with fear, not in spite of those things, right? I'm going to move forward even though I feel those things. What does Nehemiah say here? He says, I was, verse 2, very much afraid. You know? Mucho afraid. Super afraid. He was sad in the presence of the king, which he says, I had not been sad in his presence before. Risk. I wasn't allowed back then, right? You put your face on when you went into the presence of the king. So he took a risk. He was sad in his presence. He said, I was very, very much afraid. He was so sad in the presence of Artaxerxes that Art says, man, you look sick. In fact, you look so sick that the only possible explanation for this is that you're heart sick. You're not just physically feeling bad. Something is troubling you in your soul, and I see it. Woo! I smell it. I see what's going on inside of you. This is a super vulnerable moment for Nehemiah. And he says, what? I was very much afraid, but. Woo! Man, I'm doing a lot of woos this morning. It's like Ric Flair. Woo! But I said to the king, what is he saying? He's saying, I'm feeling all of this stuff. This is really risky. I'm afraid. I'm sad. I'm overwhelmed. But. He chooses to take the window that was provided and share what he's sad about. I'm just going to remind you, he's not shooting from the hip here. Again, he spent a hundred days praying, thinking, fasting, mourning, confessing his own sin. He isn't having a half-baked emotional flare-up right now. Like, here's the window to talk, and I'm just going to go do it, right? He's not being emotional right now. He's actually moving out of conviction, right? He's clearly planned based on what he asked for. I know exactly what I'm I'm prepared to ask for, right? And I'm not just sad about the situation. I have a solution for the situation. I've actually thought about what's possible here, right? But he asked for it. He goes big. He goes, for, he, he goes for a big ask because big asks require big convictions, right? 
He's operating out of conviction. And Artaxerxes says, what? What do you want? The king said to me, what is it you want? Listen to what he says here. Then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king. Now, this could be his whole own sermon, and I, I kind of want to preach a sermon on this idea of praying in real time while you're in conversations with people. I don't know if you do it, but that's what he's demonstrating here. It's not just I prayed up until this moment, but in real time, I'm actually going to continually stay dependent in prayer upon the Father as I about, I'm about to go take this risk with the king. He prays in real time, and then he answers what? This is what I want. I want to return to the city that my ancestors are buried in, and I want to rebuild it. And by asking that, what I'm asking is, is I want to be relieved from all of my job duties. I want you to let me take time off work, big time off work, so much so that you ask me, like, how long is this going to take you, and when are you going to get back to doing your job, right? So you're going to have to find another cupbearer for a little while, I need letters to all the guys who are going to give me safe passage and clearance in the trans-Euphrates, and I need it in writing because they're not going to believe what I'm telling them that you said I'm going to get to do because they already know that you've said this isn't going to happen prior, right? So they're going to think I'm crazy. I need it in writing from you. I need work orders for all of the supplies I need letters to Asaph, the king keeper, king's keeper of your force. So I need all of your wood for all of it, as well as my own personal residence, right? I need support and protection for the mission. I need an army to go with me, right? Because there's already opposition, these guys, Sam Blot and Tobiah, and he puts the entire list on the table. Woo. And guess what? Artaxerxes grants it. Why? Is it because Nehemiah took the risk? Is it, whoa, he did it, right? Is he a good salesman? Is that what happened? No. He says, what? It was because, verse 8, the gracious hand of my God was on me because I was doing what God has called me to do. His hand was on me. The king granted my requests. So really practically for us, I'm just gonna, we don't, we're not going to practice it this morning like we did. I want to just encourage you in something. We see two things in Nehemiah. We've seen this in, in last week, and we see what he's doing in this week. Practically for us, there's a time for us to spend time with the Lord getting clarity and developing conviction, listening to the Lord about what is he calling us to do. Individually, as a community, Lord, Right? through fasting, through prayer, what are you leading me to do? Give me clarity, give me conviction about that, right? But there comes a time, and this time is the time that Nehemiah is in, there comes a time where I don't need any more clarity. I need courage. I need courage to do what I'm clear about, right? I don't need clarity anymore. I'll just tell you this. A lot of counseling appointments, a lot of time with people, they're still asking for something God's already given them, which is clarity. And their prayer needs to change from clarity to courage, right? But I, don't, I don't need any more clarity because when I'm still praying for clarity, it actually, it keeps me, it, I use that, that prayer of needing more clarity to defend against actually having to act, right? 
Because if I'm unclear, I'm not sure what to do, so I don't have to act. What we see going on in Nehemiah is, is he's clear. He's sad in it. It's distilled. He's cooked the chili of conviction, right? And he's ready to eat. I'm ready to act. So the Lord may be having you, he may have you in a season where he's asking you, would you, would you fast, would you pray, would you seek me for conviction and for clarity? But for some of you, he may be saying, it's time to actually start asking me for the courage to do what I've called you to do. Would you act on it? And you have to know the difference. That's all I'll say about that. But following God will always involve risks. Secondly, there's a risk involved in not taking a risk. Because I was thinking about this, that Nehemiah could have gotten to this point and bailed. How? Because I do that. That's how I know. If Nehemiah is a person, flesh and blood, he could have gotten to this critical moment and gone, I can't do it, right? I'm afraid, so I didn't ask Art for what I could have asked Art for. Man, I missed the window, right? I oftentimes do that. But there's a risk in not taking the risk that God's called you to take. The real obvious one is this, is that you miss the life that is possible on the other side of the risk, right? Everything, because we'll see when we keep studying, the Artaxerxes grants him everything he asked for, right? He would have missed what was possible on the other side of the ask by not taking the risk, Another favorite film, what about Bob, right? Bob is such a phenomenal character, right? Remember, doesn't the whole thing start with him? Like, he can't even get out of his apartment, right, without having to, like, wipe off every doorknob. His whole life is contained in this little apartment because I, I can't risk getting germs. I can't risk getting whatever, fill in the blank. And his life was very small as a result. The scripture says, just in this passage, but plenty of other places, you and I were made to take risks, right? We were made to live life bigger than our little life in the apartment. Living like, what about Bob? Right? We were made to trust something more than ourselves and our own judgment about things. That's why, you know, Braveheart, famous line, right? All men die, but not all men truly live. What is he saying? You, you can spend your whole life and not live if you don't take risks. Garth famously sang it in the dance. Our lives. What is it? Better left to chance. I could have missed the pain. Come on. But I'd have had to miss the dance. <laughs> Right? What's he singing about? Risk. If I didn't go to the dance, I'd have missed the pain, but I'd have missed everything else too. You guys want to sing the whole song, don't you? Looking back on the memory of... No, we're not going to do it. So we miss the life that is possible. That's one risk we take when we don't take risk. We miss the life that is possible on the other side of the risk. The second one is this, and this is one's a lot more subtle, but it's deadly. We risk losing our ability to risk. This one's serious. You don't just miss the dance. You miss the whole thing. 
You miss life. C.S. Lewis gets at this idea when he talks about loving anything, really. And what has happened to Nehemiah? He, he doesn't just love his safe little life in the Susian palace. He actually starts loving the exiles and what they need more than his life. That's what's happening in him, right? We risk losing our ability to risk. Lewis gets at this idea in The Four Loves when he says, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything in your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one. Stay in your apartment, Bob. You must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries and avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your own selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. You hear what he's saying there? If you don't risk love, you may end up losing the ability to experience love altogether. He says it like this in Screwtape. The more often a man feels without acting, the less he will ever be able to act, and in the long run, the less he will be able to feel. Right? The risk in not risking is that in the process of going against a conviction that we have been given, for Nehemiah to not act in that moment would have been ignoring a conviction that he had. The risk in not doing that and not in acting in the faith that he had been given or the faith that you and I have been given. We have resources in Jesus Christ. The risk in that is that I actually eventually lose the capacity to hold any convictions and to live by faith at all. That's the risk. It's like a muscle that gets unused eventually becomes fat. When we don't use the faith that we've been given, the conviction that we've been given, the courage that we've been given, when we don't act upon those things, those things atrophy and we literally become living like cowards, right? We become comfortable. Our hearts become, Lewis says, calcified, right? Unbreakable, impenetrable. I, I actually can't, hear from the Lord anymore. My heart has become hard. It's become numb. That's the risk in not taking the risk. Life all becomes about being safe instead of good. It just becomes safe. It's not good. It's not bad. It's just safe, right? Life becomes comfortable. Not about living in the faith and the trust and the dependence that you and I were born to live in and Christ set us free to live in. Life just becomes about risk mitigation, right, and self-preservation. There's a risk in not taking a risk. So following God always involves risk. There's a risk in not taking the risk. Lastly, and this will bring us to the table, great. Thank you. I, I, I'm tracking with you. I'm still afraid. <laughs> I'm still afraid, right? I know there are things I need to act on. I know there are risks I need to take, whether it's in my friendships or in my marriage 
or with my children or in my job, whatever. There, again, lots of things for all of you. I'm still afraid. How do we find the courage to take the risk? Because I said it might be courage that we need, not clarity, right? Well, our ultimate confidence to risk, this is the last thing I'll say to bring us to the table, is this. This is Hebrews 12, 1 to 2. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Okay? So let me translate that for you. God has risks for you to take. He has a race for you. A race that is marked out for you. It may be different than the person in this room, but it's your race. Nehemiah is running his race. Are we running ours? Right? Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. How? Fixing our eyes on Jesus. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. What's that saying? I cannot take the risks. I cannot live in the faith that I have been given without fixing my eyes on Jesus. Because he is the pioneer, he is the author of that faith, and he is the perfecter of that faith. And let me tell you what, he's perfecting your faith through taking risks. You, you may not grow in your faith without taking some. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. What is he saying there? It was the life after the cross, the joy set before him, what he knew on the other side of the cross, that he endured the cross. He took the risk of the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. How did he do that? He only could sit down at the right hand of the throne because he died and rose. He took the risk and he got the reward, right? God was faithful. God the Father was faithful to keep his promise to raise him from the dead. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners. Consider him. Fix your eyes on him that you would not grow weary and lose heart. You see, when we come to this table, who we come to is we come to, to our King Jesus, right? Not Artaxerxes. And Jesus, who is fully God and fully man, is what Scripture says. He felt fear, right? He knows what it feels like to be in your shoes and to take risks. He was overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of sweating blood in Gethsemane and asking for the cup to be taken from him. Asking, hey, I know this is the race that you've called me to, to call me to perseverance and run, but can you take this cup from me? But when he prayed to his father and he asked for that, he didn't find the favor like he did of Artaxerxes. The cup was not taken from him. What he experienced was the forsaking of the Father so that you and I would never have to. That's what we celebrate at this table, that he was forsaken. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that you and I would never have to cry that. That's when we start cheering, hallelujah, right? He was forsaken. He took our sins upon himself, and he faced the wrath that our sins deserved. That was his race that was marked out for him. And yet, what do we see in Gethsemane? What do we see in the cross when Jesus broke the bread and and 
and set this supper up for his disciples, what we see is, is I'm going to walk towards that risk with trust and with faith and confidence in the heart of the Father and in the plan of redemption, the covenant of redemption. That's a huge theological term. But basically, I'm trusting in the character of God the Father to do what he says. You will raise me from the dead. Jesus took that risk and in faith trusted the Father. And as a result, this is how we have confidence. This is where we find courage to take our risks. He forever, in what he did in his death and resurrection, put the risks that you and I will take with an offense. Your risks, my risks, they are fenced in now by the ultimate and final promises of God that are yes in Christ. So yeah, you feel afraid, I feel afraid, we are taking real risks, but those risks, we're literally like kids on a trapeze and it feels crazy and we're up high, but the net, the net is what he did at this table. There is no ultimate fall. And so we can join Paul as we come to this table and celebrate and experience this. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. I'm convinced of it. That's what we feed on at this table. That's where we get courage to go out and experience in real time, face the things that are very, very hard to face, knowing that nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God and from his promises that are true in Christ Jesus our Lord. So that is our ultimate confidence to risk. And what we do when we come to this table, what are we doing? We're fixing our eyes on Jesus. We're considering him like Hebrews says, right? We're feeding on his love for us and trusting and believing and re-experiencing, having our hearts re reconfidenced, I guess. Is that even a word? <laughs> that I can face whatever he's calling me to because he faced this, right? So I'm going to pray for us here in a second. I'm going to ask the servers to come on up. If you're in Christ this morning, this, this meal is a meal you've got to eat. Uh, he's saying, come, run to this table and feed on me. Because at this table, you'll, you will taste and experience what we just talked about. And, and I will spiritually nourish you for the road ahead, right? So if you're in Christ and you've trusted him as your Savior and Lord, then come to this table and eat the meal that declares that. If you're not in Christ this morning, if you're visiting, awesome. We're excited you're here and considering who Jesus is, right? If you're a kid who's not professed faith in the Lord, if your parents are bringing you up, it's awesome for them to bring you forward and for you to experience the table with them. But this meal is a physical declaration that you have trusted in Christ for your salvation. So don't eat this meal if you haven't made that declaration in your heart, right? Um, so it's a, it's a serious meal. It's a serious thing that you're declaring. So if you're not in Christ, the invitation is this. Come to him. Come to faith in him before you come to the table that declares you have faith in him. But Paul talks about this in Corinthians. He calls us to examine our hearts. And I would just ask you to examine your heart, maybe in this one area. Lord, where are you calling me to actually move in conviction that you've given me where I'm saying no? Either that's too hard or that's, that I don't want to do that. Because trust me, everybody thinks God's calling them to this upward thing, right? Nehemiah wasn't going up. He was already at the top. He was going down. So God may be calling you to actually do something difficult, right?
So maybe I'm saying to the Lord, no thanks, I don't want to do that. I'm cool if your vision for my life equals my vision for my life, but what if your vision calls me to do something different? Maybe that's what you need to let the Lord examine your heart about as you come to the table and lead you out of that place. So I'll read the, the words of institution. When you're ready, this is not fast food. Uh, come down the middle aisles. The servers will uh, be ready to serve you. Just put out your hands. Uh, if you need prayer, cross your chest. Uh, one of us would be happy to pray for you uh, if that would uh, be meaningful for you and helpful. Um, you'll take your bread and your cup. Just take your cup with you. There's some trash cans in the back, and you can throw that away. So, Oh, they're on the sides. Yeah, the trash cans are there. All right. I'm going to read this and pray for us. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed. He took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Lord, we come to this table. Thank you for preparing it for us. Uh, in this meal, we see what you say here. Uh, this is your body, which is for you. You're for us, Lord. You have always been for us. Thank you uh, for your mercy and your grace and your goodness, for shedding your blood, for trusting <laughs> God the Father, uh, to raise you from the dead, Lord. Uh, I pray that the power that raised Jesus from the dead that we can experience now, that your resurrection power would become very true for us at this table, Lord, and that you'd set us free uh, to be those who would step into the risks that you're calling us to take to run the race that you're calling us to race.